Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have the CEO of Allband, Daniel Graf Radford, on as my guest. Daniel, would you mind giving a quick introduction to who you are, who you serve, and how you got to where you are at the moment? Marcus, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to participate in what should be a fantastic podcast. So I'm Daniel Graf Radford, and as the CEO of Allbound, we have a partner relationship management PRM offering that helps to automate and manage the channel programs for hundreds of companies. We have customers like Zoom, the web conferencing company that runs their channel on our platform. They have resellers as examples like Verizon and Verizon reps that want to sell Zoom out there to people that are working from home can use the portal to be trained on how to sell Zoom, then have content that they can bring to their prospects, register deals that then links back into the CRM to prevent channel conflict. And then we have what's called channel insights where our customers can learn what combinations of training and content can lead to what type of deal outcomes. Our North Star metric that we are carefully watching and monitoring is monthly partner engagement. We see that as the leading indicator for what leads to success for our customers. On a personal level, I have over 20 years experience in leading software companies. And over that time, everywhere that I've worked, the channel has been a really instrumental part of my personal success and the success of the companies I've worked at. With that in mind, when I found the Allbound product just over a year ago, what we learned was that all of the things that were difficult and cumbersome for me could be made significantly easier with automation and the tools here at Allbound. And I had one of those moments of just being super excited that maybe I could get on less airplanes and have late night co-branding marketing sessions and things because many of those aspects are automated right there for people in a system like Allbound. Excellent. Okay. So Daniel, tell me this, what are the four most frequently asked questions that you get from your prospects? I would say that the number one question that I'm hearing from, from prospects are, they want to understand what other companies like theirs are doing to better understand their, their prospects through partners, and then also to see what manual processes that they can automate that are causing them to stay up at night. So the first one is to understand how to do what other people are doing in channel. The second one being that automation the third area that people are, are asking us is, what are other companies doing in the channel? They, they expect that there are things that other people are doing that they might be able to do better at is one of the items that I get asked all the time by prospects. And, you know, I think a second item that comes up very, very regularly is to understand what the return on investment is of adding channel automation in, in, but really what they're looking at is how fast they can grow revenues and also remove move the cost of some of the manual processes. The thing that they're not asking that uh, I wish they were asking is what is the level of engagement that their current partners have and what their level of engagement should be with partners to succeed. 
at the point that people start asking me that, I'll feel like it's a better place to be in the channel environment. What do you mean by engagement? If we give an example of a partnership, so we have customers like Imperva, the security software company, and they may have you know, a large partner out there that brings their security software to market. How often is that partner looking at the content that helps to drive the sales? How often is that, that partner going to register deals, create prospect pages, all the leading actions that eventually lead to a sale? such as training and interaction with content and all of those things that sometimes feel like you assume your partner's doing them, but really they may or may not be. And are you tracking that digital body language that helps you understand why they're selling or not selling your software? Perfect example, UiPath came to us with well over 100 technology partners and saw that several of them were not engaging with their content. And no matter how they looked to help them engage, they didn't really seem to have an interest and rather would just like to have UiPath listed as a partner, but not really do the work. That's an incredible time suck for a channel account manager. And so knowing who really doesn't care to do anything with you, downgrading them and getting rid of them will allow you to get your back or most precious resource, which is your channel account manager's time. Do you mind if I throw a grenade your way? <laughs> of course, go for it. Okay. If your channel isn't working, you have to look in the mirror. And in my experience, I've worked in and around channel for 25, 30 years. More often than not, vendors are incredibly narcissistic and selfish. And they spend their time expecting their partners to look at their tedious white papers they try and recruit partners en masse and they recruit a land army. And anecdotally, what I'm finding is around 2% of the partner community typically generating about 40% of the revenue, which actually is really interesting because that seems to mirror Price's law, which states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. So if you have 10 salespeople, three will produce 50%. If you have 100, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000, 100 will produce 50%. And that 2% for the mid-market seems to be about right. And what I see is that vendors get it wrong right at the beginning in the recruitment phase. Like you said, it sucks up a huge amount of time, money, and resource to recruit, onboard, provision partners. Why are vendors repeatedly making the same mistake, uh, which is thinking that people give a damn about their technology. No one cares about your shiny widget. What they care about is, can it help my customer solve their problem? And as a vendor in in the technology stack, you're probably only one of maybe six or a dozen companies that they might be selling in as part of a solution. Is it any wonder that they're not getting that kind of engagement with their white papers? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, I would say I personally remember this mistake on my, gosh, it was 16, 17 years ago. Verizon was a reseller of a product I had out there in the, in the market. And I thought I came up with the perfect Verizon branded pitch for the product. And I assumed that the, the deals would start flowing in and they didn't. And uh, I was 
shocked. And I thought it was definitely them just not, not knowing how to use my, my presentation properly. So when I got on a call with some of their top reps, what I learned was that it was me and not them in two very specific ways. Number one was that my pitch had to do with what I wanted to sell as the vendor, not with how their sales cycle was actually set up for other products that I was one small part of. So that was one very important mistake that I made. The second important mistake that I made was that my timing was superbly off, that they were getting really good quota relief for everything but me that was in their bag of tricks. And, you know, being end of quarter, quota mattered way more than the spiffs I put in front of them. And so I think that, you know, one of the things to think about is not just the mistakes that can be made by having the wrong content or the mistakes that can be made by having the wrong incentive program, but there's a very important mistake that is an overarching mistake across all of these things, which is being detached from regular interaction with the best reps at your channel program so that you can pivot very, very quickly and adjust your content to be more in line with how they sell, adjust the compensation to make as much sense as possible, as early as possible with what they're going to care about. And then lastly, to understand that sometimes the time isn't right for that partner for your product right then and to go figure out where better timing aligns. You have to have the Venn diagram of so many things line up for those things to all be perfect. But the beautiful thing about channel sales is that if they're not the right person, go spend time with someone else. This is a force multiplier. And so look at the overall force for where that Venn diagram of all those ideal situations line up, not just um, you know the ones that are making mistakes to fix them now. All excellent lessons. I mean, there, there's nothing better than a good drubbing and scar tissue to help you learn vital lessons in business, I think. Tell me this. So many vendors go out there and they try and recruit this land army of partners. And they seem to think that miraculously, just because they're signed up, they will uh, suddenly start producing. The reality is the best channel managers that I know are spending 70% plus of their time in the field, in the partners' businesses, working with them, training their people to sell as if they are their own. And it doesn't matter whether they sell their products or someone else's products. They're teaching them how to get better at selling. They're working with the senior leadership team and the partners, understanding what they're trying to achieve in their business and helping them achieve their goals. Why is channel management training so poor? And why is it that they spend so much of their time looking in at their products and services instead of looking in the mirror and asking themselves the question, what am I failing to do or what am I doing wrong that is preventing partners from doing business with me? Yeah, the way that we like to help part, help vendors to think about where those mismatches are is to do a really deep dive on the ideal partner journey and then to share that potential partner journey with real partners and to see how far off and why you're off on what 
they want to see from their own journey. And what I mean by a partner journey is what is it like to onboard and become a partner? What is it like to learn about your the products that you have as a vendor? What is it like to register deals and get paid for, for selling those deals? And if there's marketing development funds and so forth, as, as detailed as you can be about each step of that journey, you can then go through the conversation partner by partner as every channel account manager should with every partner and see how it is and how it's changed over time. And what you'll find is very glaring mismatches because what happens is you'll find multiple partner types and that one journey is different versus another. And then you'll also find that the way you wish people sold and the way they actually sell are probably quite different. And that can really help you to inform the content you create and a number of other steps within that partner journey. So that really brings up a very interesting question, which is what needs to be agreed up front in terms of how you engage, how you escalate, the frequency of touch, the type of touch, in order to ensure that you get that right from the outset so there are no nasty surprises? You know, I think before companies go out making promises about engagement, they need to be honest with themselves about how much time they actually have to do engagement. You know, one of the biggest mistakes is to think that your limited team of channel account managers and yourself as a channel leader can just have unlimited meetings with unlimited partners. The truth is, is that you have a finite amount of time. And so if you have certain partners that are going to be highly interactive and bring you a ton of business, you need to account for that time up front and you need to designate, you know, whether you're using a precious metal like silver and gold and platinum for levels or, you know, whether you're creating a category like a VAR or ISV or something like that and understand the level of time you're willing to put in. Because if you start making promises about helping people on deals and helping to co-brand content and work through spiffs and discounts and things, and then you're not there for them, they're going to move on to your competitor lickety split because those partners want those end prospects to be happy. And that doesn't have to be with you. And so it's very, very important to be careful about the accountability of your own time before you even answer that question you just asked about how to set that up. Once you understand that maybe you have a team of three channel account managers and that they're going to do X interactions per week or month and so forth, you can start to create the delineation of what that means from numbers of whether you do QBRs, quarterly business reviews for some people, whether you do weekly check-ins for others and so forth. But more importantly than the amount of interactions is what the hell happens during those interactions. So if you've come up with mutual goals for helping each other, whether you as a vendor are going to solve certain bugs in your software, you're going to come up with different tiering structures for payments or whatever you've promised on your end needs to also align with what they're promising from deals registered, deals closed, number of reps trained you know, whatever those things on their end that they're promising. The partner plan that needs to be updated as the reality of the year progresses is the source of truth for how many interactions really happen. Someone may have great intentions in January of 2020, say they're going to move, let's say, 50 licenses and have 10, 10 reps trained for you. 
And then here we are in late March with COVID-19 and everyone's scratching their heads about what 2020 looks like. What does an adjusted partner plan look like when the reality of the year continues? And be, be realistic about things, these things and make these changes. That way you can communicate up to your management where your pipeline doesn't exist and they don't keep thinking that those promised deals are really there. I think you've made some phenomenally important points there. The first thing is, before you put a ring on their finger, make sure you are a good partner and you're set up to keep the promises that you make. Now, before you make any promises, make sure you have the bandwidth to be able to fulfill them. So what that tells me is that it makes more sense to have fewer partners and spend more time in the recruitment and onboarding phase and develop a special forces unit of partners rather than going out and building a land army. Once you've got your partners, make sure you're onboarding them properly and you've got clear expectations which have been mutually agreed. You've got clear lines of contact. You have a strong agreed plan that both sides are bought into and committed to. And if there are problems or there are changes like COVID-19, you need to be flexible enough to be able to adapt to the current conditions. And if you are taking on a new partner, don't then rush to try and go out and recruit more. You need to have a strong onboarding process where you bring the team on board, where you ensure that the sales team understand what it is they're selling and how to sell it, that you sit down with them and you help them develop their territory plan, their prospecting plan, identify their target accounts, how they're going to pursue them, what you're going to do to support them, and then help them create that engagement and midwife them through those deals. Do not expect them to suddenly take your products and run with them because in all probability, your partners have multiple vendors and you are just one a component of that, but they need to see you as a trusted partner who helps them get better, who helps them achieve their goals. Would that be a fair summary? I think that's incredibly well said. And you know, one of the ways that it all breaks down in the middle related to that is you have to think about it that a lot of times your partners are charismatic, capable convincing salespeople, right? And their ability to get more out of you than maybe is their fair share is, you know, well within their their capability for a lot of your partners, right? Not all. And sometimes the reverse of that, where they're such a good person at being a squeaky wheel to get your attention allows for them to get more out of you than they should. And if you have a large partner program, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of partners that account for many tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people out there that could sell your goods, that having a really fair, transparent partner program with clear rules that allow people to move up or down and out of your your program based on performance rather than charisma, rather than squeakiness, will allow you to succeed even better. If one partner realizes someone else got a better deal with worse performance, that could be the death knell of a successful partnership and they will work with those competitors. Well, again, I think what's really interesting here 
is that you need to play favorites. You need to prioritize where you're going to invest your time and energy. So when we're training our clients, we're training them to attract and recruit and onboard new partners. They also then need to make sure that they're maintaining and developing their existing partners. So I think it's very difficult for a channel manager to spend a large proportion of their time and find the right balance if they're taking on tens or dozens of partners every quarter. It makes more sense for them to be really, really selective about who their ideal partner is. Design that ideal partner. And before you put a ring on their finger, make sure there is that fit. Make sure there's that commitment from the leadership that they're going to support this partnership within the partner. Make sure that there is a clear escalation process. And I think the other thing is, when we were prepping for this call, we were talking about QBRs. I think one of the most important things that you can do with your partners is create a partner-centric satisfaction process where you are clear about how they will hold you to account for your contribution to the partnership and how you will hold them to account for their contribution to the partnership. When I define partnerships, uh, partners help one another get better. But, you know, that's the essence of partnership. And if it's the flow uh, and the effort is too much one way or the other, that then ends up feeling like it's exploitative. And I think it's really important that in that early stage, you do your prenup. You know, you work out what happens in the event of a divorce, who keeps the kids, you know, what the process is going to be in terms of escalation, the frequency of contact, telephone contact, email, physical face-to-face, how often you're going to be in the partner business, and to make sure that you are there to support them. Identify who the best salespeople are within that partnership in order to help kickstart the process so that you start putting money in their backs. Because if you're not making the money, their attention will go elsewhere very quickly. So I'm still puzzled. I mean, your channel's been around for a long time now. But there seems to be a tradition of doing things the same old way. And I'm not seeing a huge amount of evolution in the channel, despite the fact that I think a lot has changed in the last two, three years. And you know, COVID-19 must have created some amazing shifts in the way people work with their partners. Have you given any thought or do you have any data on how that's affecting the way people are interacting with their partners. Yeah, it's been really interesting here at at Allbound. We are very sensitive to the fact that our customers have not only personal issues of potentially having family members affected or themselves affected or partners affected and trying to figure out how that works and then figuring out how to work from home that, you know, for a few days there, it was just a very broad set of question marks about what it meant in the channel space. But what's happened in the last week is interesting when you when you kind of look at the data coming from Allbound. We have seen a 35% week-over-week increase in activity and, and monthly partner engagement across every single one of our customers' base which is the largest week-over-week increase we've seen. And we have some massive customers like General Electric and 
WP Engine and others that have really big partner programs. And to see this shift on a large scale is fantastic in the sense that people are looking for ways to collaborate. Some of the customers that we have, if you take the top half performers, they're averaging between 80 and 127% week over week increase, which is an unheard of level of increase. And when I look at it, I'm seeing certain things being done that are really working. And you know, this is a scary time where if historically you worked with your partners through meeting them at conferences and you used to meet with them face-to-face for a quarterly business review, a QBR that ended with a steak dinner that really helped you to solidify your relationship and, and things like that. How do you adjust that to work from home in your dining room or your basement or your home office, whatever that looks like, which is probably put together this week. And how do you become even more relevant and helpful when everyone in that chain of command in both companies is probably also figuring things out as well? So a few things that I'm seeing that are really interesting are, number one, the movement to use things like Calendly and Zoom through our our system that people are setting up their their reviews together and they're setting up meetings together, taking some of their different conferences, whether that's a user conference or a partner conference and taking it online. And then someone was telling me the other day, and I'm starting to see this, that they're finding um, fun things to add in at the end. So you can't go out for drinks. You can't go out for dinner. So they're doing a virtual cocktail hour or they're doing a a set of games that you can play collaboratively together, um, sort of like board games online. There's one called House Party that's free. And you can add that at the back end of your Zoom where people can, you know, go get the beverage of their choice and they can play these kind of fun games. And those things help to, to create a little bit more of a human relationship, which not only helps you in this transition from that face-to-face meeting, but also, you know, people are stuck at home with the same people. So playing a short, fun online game will really stand out in the mix. So the interactions that we're seeing are areas like moving things to these online interactions, number one, that I just described. Another area is, you know, in our software, what's called a prospect page, where you can group content together and have it sent off to prospects and watch their level of interaction with it. And then you can have meetings between the partner and the vendor on what worked and didn't work and do even a certain level of A-B testing to see those things work out there in the wild. So that's the second thing we're seeing a lot of success on and uh, was just hearing some stories about that this morning. The third area that we're seeing a good amount of, of interaction about is figuring out what content to present at what stage of a sales cycle. So looking through every past sales cycle and what led to that success, and then gating content and pushing it to the partner so that when they get to that sales cycle, you have a digital item that can be sent to the prospect. When in the past, your partner used to meet with that prospect for a lunch or a breakfast, they can have a conversation about 
something instead. And so creating something that causes the next level of interaction based on the stage of the sales cycle. Those are the things we're seeing. So I'm personally really encouraged about the brave people that are making these really difficult behavior changes in such a fast fashion. And I wonder what it means for the rest of the year. If they have success with this, does this become one more tool or do they go back to the QBRs they were having or a combination of the others? The last thing I think that I would love to make sure we mention is that some people are succeeding and some people are failing at thinking through the digital prep that happens for a digital meeting. So if in the past you had a certain way to get ready for that QBR meeting, you need to put together at least that level of effort, if not more, when you're having a, you know, an online meeting with your, your partner, because this is a data-driven meeting. And if you show up with, what have you done for me lately? And you don't have the data on what they've engaged with, what they've not engaged with, say the reps they promised they would have trained versus the ones they did. And the the approach shouldn't be holding them accountable. The coach should be more internally based. What can I do as the vendor to help incent your reps that are scared at home to spend a little bit of time doing the all bound learning tracks to learn our product? So, you know, if you take the approach of what can I do to help you with these things and bring the data of what's happened and not happened, I see tons of, of rapid engagement with that. You have, unfortunately, for all of us in the world, captive audiences of people sitting at home that want to make a difference in their day for their company. And so, you know, use that for automating and managing these interactions. I think there's a really interesting question that vendors and partners need to think about, which is when this crisis is over, what will be the new normal? And I think it's important that vendors and partners sit down now, maybe you know, give it a couple of weeks while the dust settles. But I don't believe after this experience that people can or will go back to the way they used to do business in the past. I think one of the things I'm seeing an awful lot of, even in the last seven to 10 days, is the realization that many of their processes may have started out nice and simple, but they got complicated and fattened up as people added little uh, tweaks and flourishes here and there. And what worked in an environment where they were engaging physically isn't working so well in this enforced change. And I think one of the good things that will come of this is it will force organizations to look at their processes and their systems and look at simplification. I think also it will raise the question, do we need to travel so much? Do we need to spend so much time in the office? Because I think as more and more people from the vendor side are forced to spend time helping their partners to succeed, they will realize that that is a far more productive use of their time than being stuck in their own office where it's nice and comfy and cozy. And they need to be engaging with their partners more and more. And I'm hopeful that that will be a byproduct. And I'm hoping that they're not going to go back to their old ways of phoning up and saying, Daniel, what have you got for me this month? Nothing great. I'll speak to you next month. The quality of communication, I think, will have to be elevated. Because if you don't elevate it in this crisis period, then your partners will look at you with a great deal of uh, suspicion or contempt 
while those of your competitors who are doing that will get more of their mind share and more of their attention. So I'm curious, I mean, at, at what point do you think it makes sense for partners and vendors to sit down together and start planning this important but not urgent shift in the way that they do business going forward when the COVID-19 crisis comes to an end. Yeah, and you know, sitting down together doesn't have to be face-to-face. You know, I find that a Zoom meeting with my camera on and my partner's camera on is pretty good. And that I, you know, there's obviously some advantages of, you know, being able to do social events and things like that. But I think that to your point, the check-in meeting is really a numbers game is how it's looked at is incorrect. And that understanding more deeply why there are or are not deals or there are sufficient reps being trained or not, getting into the why requires a deeper plan on each of those check-ins. But also in setting the stage for the relationship needs to happen, if not quarterly or yearly, you know, on a very regular basis, but also dependent on how you're classifying the that partnership today versus how you think it could grow into in the future, right? One of the things that I think about with this is 20-something-year-old Daniel, say, it's about 25, 26 years old, I went to my first big-time partner QBR. My CEO took me with me to our company's largest partner and we did all of this fantastic prep for how our product had changed. And then we had a section on there for what we think they could sell and why. And then a discussion about how we would train them and how we would support them at conferences they were going to. And then there was a section for them to explain to us what resources they would commit from training and bringing us into deals. And then a forecasting session and Then we went to one of my favorite steakhouses and uh, had a good night. And then I left thinking this was fantastic and all of this new business was going to come my way and I would have commission checks rolling in that would be incredibly meaningful for me. And I was truly shocked when zero things that were promised on either side happened. And when I think about that versus 40-year-old Daniel, when I have these sorts of meetings, one of the things that I, I like to think about are the touch points coming out of that business planning meeting that will help us to see where we're on and off track, but also to understand more importantly than being on or off track, why? Why are we ahead? Why are you killing it so that I can go take that learning to the next partner and also get the them to even do more? And why are we behind? You know, my assumption with Verizon that I had the perfect sales deck is a perfect example of, of a mistake I made, you know, in that same understanding why. And by coming out with things that were more meaningful at the right timing allowed me to sell a lot more with Verizon. So my point is, is that the standard methodologies for creating a promise and then checking in later just isn't going to work. And there are tools available, not just all bound, that will really help you to understand the why and have a more meaningful interaction at a very large scale, meaning a lot of partners at a lot of times. If you have to do 
30 hours of prep for a QBR, there's only a limited number of QBRs you can do a month. And so if you can limit that prep and make the interaction even more meaningful than with that manual prep, you're going to handle a scale of partnerships that's well beyond what you can do today. And I think that's what people need to think about. It's really interesting. I'd like to take the conversation to another area of significant contention, which is the conflict between channel and direct. Because I I think you made the point that everyone fails when there are silos between the channel and the direct, especially the customer. And I'm curious about what organizations need to do to think about that particular area of conflict and conflagration. Because channel, I I always joke about this, but I I think I'm pretty uh, much on the money. Because of where sales leadership has come from, they're largely from direct. And they see direct new business enterprise sales as being the golden child, while channel is the jahed bastard ugly stepdaughter of direct sales. And a lot of organizations have got compensation schemes that inadvertently create tension and conflict. The compensation schemes, what you measure, what you manage, appears to be unintentionally or intentionally set up to create this conflict. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how to smooth that path over? Because from the customer's perspective, what they care about is, can you solve my problem? And where there is this conflict and this dissonance, that undoubtedly is going to be experienced by them. Yeah, happy partners mean happy customers. So I'm curious on your thoughts about this as well, because it's such an important area. And again, I don't think it's been well handled by most organizations. Well, so before I take credit for what I'm about to say, you know, Allbound has the smartest head of marketing of anyone in the channel automation industry. Her name is Tori Barlow. And one of the first things that she did when she came into Allbound was she did a study of channel leaders that are in our space ended up with data on over 2,000 people. And so we ended up with some really interesting demographic data towards, say, middle of, of last year. So still very, very relevant from a time perspective. And we were seeing that the channel leader was demographically shifting um, from historically being a male in kind of late 40s to mid 60s to being more of an even split male and female and demographically coming younger with people in 20s, 30s, and 40s taking on leadership roles in the channel. And we were seeing some buyer behavior in broad areas of how they think about you know, their world as a channel leader in a very, very different way. Because what we found was there was this consolidation happening between sales and marketing into the chief revenue officer, CRO type role. And if you're a chief revenue officer that is thinking about her business and trying to sell more whatever software, let's say, out there in the wild, and you have this set of salespeople inside of your four walls that are out there trying to win business for you, and you have marketing automation systems, driving campaigns that you can 
understand the ROI of looking at the channel team as this sort of annex of potential revenue that sometimes happens completely goes away because when when you don't have those silos what do you really care about you care about the prospect journey and that prospect journey sometimes touches your salespeople, sometimes touches your campaigns a lot of times they'll touch affiliates that could drive people to you they could touch consultants that that already have relationships with those prospects for say implementations or potential technology partners that you're already integrated with that could have marketplaces for you those prospects to buy off of the way to think about indirect and direct being less siloed is not pie in the sky all it is is thinking about your salespeople inside of your four walls and your channel being what's happening outside of your four walls and understanding the actual prospect journey and what that prospect wants to do to participate in buying your software or your competitors. And I would say one of the greatest companies in the world at figuring this out is WP Engine. You know, they've seen triple digit growth in revenues in ways that way outpace all of their competitors by figuring out that there's an ecosystem of people out there in the wild that touch everyone that could be a WP Engine customer. How do you incent them to work with those potential prospects to drive them either into your direct sales model or through an indirect sign-up page and make it more about that prospect's ideal journey, not about this silo is called direct and that silo is called indirect. And you know, another company I would give very high marks to is Imperva. Imperva is one of the greatest security software companies on earth. And they have figured out how to have their indirect team and direct team work together in ways that drive incredible speed of ARR. So if you're going to touch, I don't know, let's just make up a number, 100 opportunities this year and your average sales cycle today with the siloed approach is say six months. If you could change that six months to four months or five months, what does that do to your annual revenue number? And then more importantly than just the massive growth, are you making happier prospects and therefore happier customers because their experience is the way they want to buy and you're not having one partner fight with your own rep on whose deal is it? No potential prospect cares about whose deal it is. They just want to buy the way they want to buy. So be available the way they want to buy and incent appropriately, measure what's working and get rid of the stuff that isn't. I think this also raises another question. As the technology stack becomes more complex, the end customer is looking for a solution. And the partners are the ones that have the ongoing client relationship. And I suspect when you're getting 12, 20 different vendors involved, they want one throat to choke. So that's likely to be the partner. So I I think it makes a hell of a lot more sense to really make that, like you said, you know, focus on the customer journey and what they're looking for and make it easy for the partners to do business, selling your products as part of the stack or as part of the solution. It just seems like complete madness that vendors think that 
somehow what they want is actually of any real importance to the end customer. That's selfish selling. And I think people forget that sales is about service. It's not about servitude, but it is about service. And serving your customer and your partners, honestly, are your best customers because one partner could bring in 50 uh, end users in a year or 100 uh, end users or 1,000. I think it's really important that senior leadership buys into that. So what's your message to the senior leadership of vendors when it comes to shifting their culture? There's the message today and there's the message tomorrow. You know, Marcus, we have to work with the vendors where they're at. And, you know, where where we are today with that is how can we create really tight communication between the vendor, the partner, and the end customer so that people don't feel like they're having to repeat themselves, so, people, so that customers don't feel like they have to repeat themselves, so that partners don't feel like they're in the dark and vendors feel like they hold all the keys to the kingdom and no one else uh, feels like they're winning. And so the answer is, there's some stuff like automation. Can you tie in the ticketing system so that everyone at the partner side can see the issues with the customers on, on the customer side and help with those renewals and, and in those ways? That That's one piece. The other piece of it is that I find it really helpful to have three-part dialogues on having the end customer, the partner, and the vendor have orchestrated meetings where you know, the partner's power with that vendor, it should be stronger than any one customer because they represent a broad set of customers. And so helping to amplify that customer's voice is an interesting power to bring to the table with the vendor that helps to facilitate interesting meetings where everyone can learn from each other. That's where we are today. In, in the future, I predict that there will be a concept of through partner retention that is better thought out even potentially a broader tech stack around that. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you have a great relationship as an end customer with a partner that sold you something, and then it comes time for renewal or potentially upgrading or upselling or downselling or or churning away, you know, how should that set of interactions that leads to a better outcome for everyone involved be co-led by both the vendor and the partner, but potentially led by the partner through guidance from the vendor. And I think that there are going to be software and process solutions coming out very soon in that regard. But you know, today, right now, you have three people that are blind to each other's perspectives trying to figure this out as leading to the worst possible outcomes. Very interesting. Tell me this. What are you reading, being influenced by, watching, listening to at the moment that you'd recommend to listeners? Well, one thing that I really love about our company is that we do a company book club and we let the company uh, sort of do a vote on what we can do together. And it's optional. Not everyone is into it, but almost everyone is. And uh, so far, there are two books that I think went over extremely well that I highly recommend. One of them, the sales acceleration formula by Mark Roberge showing kind of the progress of HubSpot from early days to a a large company. I think if you're running a SaaS company, especially in the marketing technology, MarTech space, you are doing yourself a disservice if you haven't read that. 
The second one is called the Phoenix Project. And if you're running a tech company and you have not thought through moving to a DevOps model, you have to read it. And I would say that, you know, it's explicitly in the book and updating of what I read in the business school at Emory. The goal, I'm sure everyone's read, really fantastic book about bottlenecks in uh, manufacturing, and they apply it to IT and technology in the Phoenix Project. So I recommend those two books. Excellent. So I'd add to that a book called The Success Cadence by Dave Madsen, Tom Shodorf, and Bart Finelli, which is all about the growth of Splunk. So going from 45 million to 1.2 billion in five years. I haven't read that. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Thanks. It's a really fascinating read. In fact, I've got Tom coming on to the podcast next week, I think. So that's going to be a really interesting conversation. Tell me something. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Daniel age 23 how to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage, what advice would you give him? So 23-year-old Daniel, ironically enough, took less risks in business than than 40-year-old Daniel today. And taking risks earlier actually would be my number one piece of advice. And then, you know, when it comes to the channel, if I had learned about monthly partner engagement in my 20s, I would have held people accountable even if I didn't know PRM existed. And I would have made personally a hell of a lot more money. So the big picture is take risks early. And the second one is monthly partner engagement. On that note, and the definition of risk is going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what you've got. And if you can't cope with the worst case scenario, do not take the risk. But if you can, then take it. Sacrificing is going from high to lower value and there is no upside. And I think a lot of people confuse the two. You should maximize your risk. So it's great advice from Daniel there. Final question then, what are you struggling with at the moment? What what are you wrestling with? You know, I think that one of the beauties of my company is that we have a very young, very vibrant, hardworking team. And we have done a fantastic job of converting to a remote working company. But one of the things that as a CEO that's important for me to do is to make sure that not all of my interactions with my team are just about business. And so finding, you know, interesting ways to have, I guess at this point, online interactions that are somewhat more social and people feel more comfortable to kind of share what's going on during this really difficult time. We started doing a few of those things this week and I've seen you know, a real opening up of the team to kind of share some really difficult challenges that they have. And, and through those things, we can actually help each other. But if you're just doing business meeting after business meeting, you can't actually treat your people like people. And so trying to find ways to be personal through digital means is the challenge we all face today. And, and we're making some progress there, but I think it's still hard. This is really interesting. In fact, we touched on it today in my management class. I think one of the most important things, and it needs to start in the recruitment process, on in the onboarding process, and then in development, is that as a manager, it's incumbent on managers to understand the individual's reason for being in this job, in this company. What's their purpose? For whom are they doing it? 
And too often what we find is that managers are uncomfortable having that conversation. And I think it's really powerful when you get to understand an individual's personal motivation, then you can remind them of why they're doing what they're doing and you can tie their personal goals to their corporate goals. But it's also really important to listen. So a couple of recommendations. I don't know if you've read it. Mark Goulston's book, Just Listen, is stunningly good. And there's a, a number of very powerful ways of genuinely listening empathically in a way that helps people feel understood, feel heard. And he wrote another very good book, interestingly enough. And I think a big issue that we're going to see it in about two months when people start getting stir crazy as the lockdown really takes effect. And it's a book by Mark Goulston also called Talking to Crazy. And it largely talks about uh, dealing with that that tough internal dialogue. So I would recommend both of those for the book club. And from a management perspective, really important that managers genuinely understand why people are in work because they come to work for their reasons, not our reasons. They're motivated by what motivates them. You cannot motivate people. Motivation is an internal force. So I think both of those books will be really insightful in terms of helping to get to grips with the human side of managing, but also being a good peer. Don't know whether or not that's of any help. That's really helpful. Yeah, we, we keep, we're keeping a running spreadsheet and I've added those in for us to select from. So thank you. Brilliant. Daniel, how can people get hold of you? So the best place to check us out is at allbound.com, A-L-L-B-O-U-N-D.com. And um, then I'm obviously on LinkedIn and and uh, yeah, it's uh, dgrafradford at allbound.com for email. And I would love to hear from anyone that's listening to this for their thoughts. Brilliant. Daniel, thank you so much. This has been really insightful and exceptionally helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please like, comment, and share, subscribe. And if you think you would be an interesting guest for the podcast, or there's somebody that you would really love me to interview, then please get in touch at mcauchi at sandler.com. Happy selling. Stay safe and well. Bye-bye.